0: Peace, wake Back to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Today's show brings us inside the mind of a top allocator and CIO in the private wealth world. We talk with Shannon Sakosha, the CIO of Newberger Berman Private Wealth, a division of Newberger Berman that has almost seventy billion of assets under management. With over twenty-four years' experience, Shannon brings a wealth of knowledge on private markets to bear. At NB Wealth, she works closely with investment leadership to establish market views, asset allocation, and portfolio recommendations tailored specifically for NB Private Wealth clients. Prior to joining NB, she was the CIO for five years at SVB Private and Boston Private Wealth, which SVB acquired in July of 2021. In this capacity, she oversaw all investment management functions, including portfolio construction, asset allocation, third-party manager selection, equity and fixed income portfolio management, performance, and trading. Shannon and I had a fascinating conversation on the evolution of private markets and how both allocators and GPs can think about this changing landscape. We discussed the definition of alts and what true alternatives are, the changing nature of asset allocation, and why alts are such a critical part of investors' portfolios, the evolution of fees and what investors should be paying for, why specialized managers can win the importance of geopolitics and macro in a world where deglobalization has an increasing impact on asset allocation and performance, why secondaries are an on-ramp for private markets for the high net worth channel, what it means to get comfortable with being uncomfortable as an investor, and what the institutional investor world can learn from high net worth investors. Thanks, Shannon, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your thoughts and wisdom on private markets. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Welcome to the Alco's Mainstream podcast.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me, I'm excited to be here.
0: Pleasure to have you on because you have such a fascinating perspective on both Alt and the Wealth Channel, which is a trend and topic that is increasingly becoming more interesting as there's more and more of a collision between those two topics. So I'd love to start with how you think things have evolved in terms of working with the Wealth Channel in the context of alts throughout your career. It's
1: so interesting. The fact that we're even sitting here talking about the wealth channel being an actual channel, that's been a big change. I started off post-2001. Really, the majority of financial advice was delivered through wirehouses. So coming into the world of being an advice provider, being a fiduciary, coming into a registered investment advisor, that alone was an interesting spot to start in. And really back in 2005, 2006, there wasn't a level of understanding. And so from an alternatives perspective, it was even more pronounced. If you think about who was using alternatives back when I started in the industry, it was everyone was trying to replicate the Yale endowment model by David Swenson in their family office portfolio. That was about it. There was this very clear delineation between have and have nots in terms of access to alternative and the inclusion of those in portfolios.
0: So, you mentioned the concept of a fiduciary, and that's becoming, I think, more to the forefront as the wealth space itself changes. That also relates to alts, right? Because I think alts is, is interesting when you think about how products are distributed through various channels. Talk to me a little bit about what the meaning of fiduciary is to you, particularly in the context of alts, as we're seeing more and more products get manufactured by larger platforms. Still, a lot goes through warehouses. How do you think about that whole landscape?
1: I think for a long time, there was an attempt, if you will, in terms of differentiating if you were at a registered investment advisor or if you were a registered rep at a broker-dealer. To me- There's really not a line between those two anymore. I think from the public's perspective, from the regulatory perspective, we're all acting in the best interest of our clients. And I would say that most of us always were, just because of where your license sat or what type of organization you sat in. The majority of people who've been giving advice to clients for a long time have been acting in their best interest. When it comes to alternatives, I think there's perhaps a little bit more of a question in terms of the understanding of the suitability of a particular product, the underlying strategy, and the ability to determine if that's appropriate for a particular client or particular relationship. And I think that's where you need to see some differentiation in terms of what your expectations are of your advisors. But it also is a great opportunity to continue to see that deepening of knowledge amongst those that are giving advice to individuals, families, and foundations.
0: So from that perspective, you probably have a fascinating view on this. You were previously at Silicon Valley Bank spending a lot of time thinking about alts. You're now at Newberger Berman as the CIO on the private wealth side, thinking a lot about alts. How has your perspective on alts changed and the way in which you think about both providing advice and then also thinking about where alts fits from an asset allocation perspective?
1: I think the main thing that's changed is the way that we think about alts in general, and that this concept of alternatives going back 20 years or so, it was cash, equity, fixed income, and then everything else that didn't fit into one of those categories became alternatives. For a long time, even reporting was that big other on your client report. And I think what's changed is that the concept of equity and fixed income and and even cash and cash-like vehicles, there are different ways across the continuum to deliver that. And so the inclusion of things that perhaps are limited liquidity or, or no real liquidity in your equity and fixed income allocations, that's new, I, I feel like, over the last several years. I don't think it's new on the institutional side. I think it's sort of been in place. But I think this is where you're seeing that creep from the institutional space into the high net worth space in particular. And I think it's actually a great change that we've seen come about over the last few years.
0: So you mentioned that the way in which the private wealth channel and the RIA channel think about alts is different. You've defined this concept of true alternatives. We talked about this at Future Proof as well. What do you mean by that?
1: The way that I look at true alternatives is partially, what does that market look like? What's the access to that market? What is the way that those instruments or assets, if you will, are valued? And what is the purpose in the portfolio? Because if you look at something like, private equity or public equity. The timeline might be different. The liquidity might be different. But the end outcome tends to be an increase in the share price, (laughs) whether that's on the public side or the private side. And eventually, I think most private equity, if you think about the monetization of that, it is in some way in a public form. It's an acquisition by a public company. It's going to market through an IPO or other structure. So I look at true alternatives being really outside of that sphere. And what are the risk-reward characteristics for that? How are those things structured? And the role that they play in the portfolio in many cases is truly non-correlated. And I think that's where the determination for me in thinking about true alternatives is we're really looking for things that are outside of correlation with either equity or fixed income.
0: It's a really interesting point that you bring up, in part because I think when you think about alternatives- In the past, as you say, people have thought about it as this kind of other bucket. And that could be private equity, that could be hedge funds, that could be private credit, whatever it may be, real assets. Now, as you think about this concept of true alternatives and you think about the mainstreaming of alts, so we've gone beyond this 60-40 portfolio – Sounds like what you're saying is you really need to think about alts more holistically as part of the portfolio in the sense that not only is there return generative capabilities, but there's also risk and correlation as well. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because like you say, equities, whether they're private or public, is still an equities exposure.
1: Absolutely. So if you're in the institutional space, you're always looking at something like a sharp ratio for how effective is your portfolio construction in terms of yielding a better risk return characteristic. Private clients, sharp ratio doesn't mean all that much to them. And so what I look at in constructing a portfolio is what is that range of outcomes that the client will have to digest and sustain over the course of their time horizon in order to deliver that desired outcome. That's how you can really describe what it means to increase your sharp ratio is what is that outcome and what is the increased probability of you meeting that outcome by creating a more diversified portfolio. So I think it's taking a lot of those institutional quantitative metrics that we've all used to build portfolios in the past and relating them in a narrative way to private clients. It's fundamentally the same process. But it it does help you to understand how much liquidity you need. What's the longevity factor? What's the time horizon? What structure? Because if you're looking at it in terms of defining that outcome, that's a really important
0: piece. Really interesting point when it comes to the concept of outcomes. And I think this actually gets to two really interesting sub-questions there. One on the GP side in terms of productization. So the Wealth Channel may need different products based on... They're a different customer type than an institution, have different goals, different time horizons, liquidity provisions, et cetera, like you say. The other piece is on the LP side. On the investor side, they need certain structures or have to meet certain goals, which may or may not be different than the institutional side. How do you think about those two things and the concept of what you just said around making sure how things fit into a portfolio holistically?
1: Well, that's been one of the most challenging pieces of building portfolios for a wide range of clients, everyone from a traditional high net worth investor or family, all the way up to very complicated family office clients. I think one of the things is, number one, we can identify a really great investment idea or investment thesis Is it actionable for high net worth clients? Does it make sense? Because I think that the more that you try to apply an inelegant or non-functional structure to access a particular asset type or exposure, that's where you start to have those stresses or frictions in terms of, does this make sense for high net worth clients? Does this make sense in the wealth channel, in the wealth space? And so I think when you're putting together and you're structuring product, it is making sure that you're balancing, does this make sense in this type of structure, knowing that this is the type of structure we need? And from an LP perspective, really getting under the hood and understanding if that structure makes sense for the risk that you're taking on and the exposure you're trying to garner.
0: What's the advice you'd have for GPs who are really spending a lot of time dedicating themselves to working with the Wealth Channel and in part structuring product for the wealth channel, which may be very different than how they would structure a product for the institutional channel? There's one
1: thing that I think has always been an area of focus for institutional level GPs, and that's been around access, access to deal flow, getting the best deals. We've all seen the reports of the top quartile, especially in places like VC, right? There's a persistence in that outperformance over time for those top GPs. I think that one of the things that a lot of these firms need to look past is that access idea probably doesn't land as well as it does in the institutional space with the wealth channel. They just assume that major firms have access to the best de- deals. And so thinking about explaining why the access to those deals and the flexibility and latitude to structure different things and create the appropriate liquidity pres- provisions and potentially provide some stability in terms of those products and the teams that are running them. That's really where I think institutional GPs uh, can differentiate themselves. It's not going to be about access necessarily for the wealth channel. It's going to be about a combination of access and structure and knowledge, experience, security for those underlying LPs, because those are all the things that Just getting comfortable with the investment thesis isn't enough for a wealth LP. They have to be comfortable with the rest of that because that's what creates the reputational risk for allocators such as myself.
0: Do you think GPs understand the challenges that allocators face in terms of how they have to explain and deal with clients when it comes to helping those clients navigate private investments in a portfolio?
1: I think much more so now than even five years ago. I think that the idea that we were sitting in these meetings and being able to show a couple of quick pages of a pitch book, and that would immediately make the sale for our Lying Wealth clients, that wasn't understood five years ago. Now it really is. And so I think what you're seeing is that educating on the why, educating on the what, educating on the how. Is becoming much more part of the dialogue and the discussion from institutional GPs. And I know at Newberger Berman, our private markets team spends a lot of time on this. And it's because I think we want the underlying LPs to be comfortable and knowledgeable because that creates better outcomes for them as well as better outcomes for us.
0: Where do you think GPs still have to improve when it comes to truly understanding the allocator's experience and helping them basically? Because it's really a two-part I hesitate to use this word, but sale. You have to convince the clients as to why something in alternatives makes sense for their portfolio. But that means the GP has to convince you and then you have to convince the client. So it's really, it's an intermediated process for for both the GP and to some extent for you.
1: So one of the things that we heard so often back in those early days of incorporating alternatives was the importance of vintage year diversification and making sure that you have diversified exposures. And I think today we still could get a little bit more guidance from institutional GPs in terms of how does this fit into an overall program and how to start a program. And so I know a lot of us are doing that work from an allocator perspective. And so I think, really understanding that first product, that first foray into alternatives for many clients on the wealth side is going to be predictive of their experience and willingness to do more in alternatives in a future state. So ensuring that the advisor that an institutional GP is working with to ensure that they are arming that advisor with the right type of of education about how this fits into a portfolio to essentially create the opportunity for a future sale, that's really critical. It doesn't seem to be as relevant in the public market space. We all know somebody can go into a public market strategy and it doesn't go well and they just switch it out to another public market strategy. Having a bad experience and alternatives, and I can attest to this from 2008 and 2009 for clients that had their first foray in 2007 and obviously had a lot of gates and challenges and that colored their experience for the next decade. And we didn't have another at bat, if you will, to get them into another strategy.
0: How do you think about this from the allocator perspective in terms of really being able to survey the universe? This gets to what you were talking about a second ago in terms of GPs really figuring out how to create the right product. A lot of these platforms, as we know, are expanding and becoming multi-asset class, multi-strategy. They almost want you to just go to one provider and buy the entire menu, if you will, How do you think about that concept and evolution of the alt space as an allocator?
1: I I think there are pros and cons to that approach. I think that there are opportunities to do deep diligence and research on a number of different providers. And I, I do think that despite the fact that you have a lot of institutional GPs, I think that there are areas where different institutional GPs have more experience and a stronger track record. I think if you have the resources to be able to do that due diligence, I think it's worth it. The other thing to think about is that there tends to be, just like there is on the public equity side, some crowding into successful strategies. So taking a step back and looking at just because a particular firm has a very successful track record in another type of strategy doesn't necessarily imply that they're the best for another particular type of strategy. You see this across whether it's VC, private equity, private real estate, really anything. I think being thoughtful about, let me kick the tires a little bit more, understand where somebody's core competency is and focusing your efforts on that, I think is an important aspect. The flip side of that is the ease of working with one or two providers. You can strengthen the relationship. You potentially can have deeper conversations. And so I think for different firms, for different allocators, They're going to weigh one of those over the other. But there's a lot of great strategies in the marketplace. And so there's certainly opportunity to do both.
0: It's a great segue into touching on a concept that I feel has become more prominent in private markets as many larger GPs become bigger and more capital flows into the space. It's great on one hand that more capital is flowing into alts because it grows the space. It institutionalizes the space, both on the LP side and the GP side. But I characterize this as we're now in a world where in some parts of private markets, it's beta in search of private markets alpha. What do you make of that?
1: This is not inconsistent with other periods of time where we've seen similar pattern, if you will. And I think that it comes back to What happened with hedge funds, for instance, post-2011, there was a lot of introspection, a lot of soul-searching about what are we paying for. And with Sarbanes-Oxley and the transparency that needs to be afforded from a public market perspective, there was a seismic shift in the opportunity set and the ability to generate alpha, particularly for public equity hedge funds. I think that today you should start to see a similar introspection in terms of what is it that I'm paying for? Is it differentiated? Is it worth uh, the illiquidity that I'm taking on, as well as, frankly, the higher fees? They've come down, but they're still higher than what you're seeing in the public equity or credit space. You, you have to take that into account in your evaluation of these opportunities.
0: What's the future of fees? We've seen it go down on the institutional side. We've seen a trend towards co invests with the endowments and pensions who've said, hey, we want to call our relationships. We now want to do co invests. OTT, Ontario Teachers is a good example of that, as with others. What happens with the fee question when it comes to the high net worth channel as that becomes a more prominent part of the LP base?
1: That is a challenge because we've experienced at the investment strategy level, I would say a right sizing of fees. I don't like to use the term compression because I think if you're talking about wealth management, the value that's being afforded elsewhere, we've been able to maintain fees where they are because of the value we're providing from a wealth management perspective. But on the investment side, I do think that there will be questions, particularly there's talk of putting alternatives into ERISA plans That has meaningful implications longer term for fee compression because that's a different standard and the comparisons there are much different than they are in the current high net worth wealth management space. I think overall you'll see uh, pressure on fees and that's why I think that going back to my earlier comment Managers need to be prepared to earn those fees and the broader base and the broader retail footprint. And as we know, once retail gets involved, there's a lot more scrutiny on fees. There's a lot more scrutiny on competitiveness. I think that that's going to be something that this industry is going to need to hit head on. But I think we'll be prepared to do that because I think people have been anticipating it.
0: It's interesting when you think about the fact that the Individual investor or high net worth channel or pure retail channel, when you get down to ERISA plans or retirement plans, really does change the game. For some period of time, it has felt like GPs have not necessarily been welcoming as much transparency. And to to some extent, understand that and the concept of creating more transparency can make it harder to operate and build companies in private markets with patients. Now, I want to be clear, I don't think that means that people shouldn't be transparent about reporting or things like that. But if you get towards a more liquid private markets, it can impact people's decision-making, as we see in public markets. Right, Quarterly reporting drives certain types of incentives, which private markets don't have. What do you make of this increasing transparency in private markets, both the good and the bad when it comes to things like creating alpha in private markets? Building companies in private markets?
1: I think it could be a challenge because w- when we talked uh, on Huntington Beach in that beautiful location where we met the last time, we talked about the optionality that illiquidity and being private affords fund managers and affords investors on the GP side. And the dilution of that. Would be meaningful, I think, if we look at it from an alpha perspective. And so I think that there's a, a very important aspect to transparency where we've come a long way in the 10 years um, since the GFC, almost 13 years now, actually. Wow, I'm aging myself. But I think that I, I, a cautionary tale would be I, I don't necessarily think that increased transparency always yields better results. And so I think that institutional GPs really need to consider that in terms of being able to fulfill their mandate, develop an investment process, that they have the flexibility and latitude to maintain that optionality and therefore be able to drive results.
0: What does that look like in the future when you think about product construction, the types of areas where these institutional GPs focus on within private markets?
1: I I think that there will likely be an emphasis on perhaps more specialization. And I think that you see that in GPs now where they have said, listen, we don't want to operate in this space because the the regulatory oversight is just too much for us to be able to engineer value or M&A is almost impossible based on FCC, for instance. So we're not going to play in that space. I think you start to see strategies morph and become more specialized uh, to account for that, where they are in the stage. Is it we only do anything before series B? We're only going to do recaps. Who knows? But I think that that will impact the way that managers think about not only executing their strategy, but also their expected results. I I can see more emphasis being placed on where do we want to play? Where can we be p- competitive? Where can we maintain that optionality? And if that means we have to pivot our strategy or specialize in in certain areas, I could see managers doing that in response to this call for transparency.
0: You're bringing up a number of really interesting points and I think this gets to some of the nuances particularly in certain areas of private markets like venture as an example the CIO Common Fund Mark Anson came on the podcast and said that he thinks specialized sector focused managers are going to win. Certainly in venture, that's something I would agree with. (laughs) I happen to be a specialized manager, but also agree with that. And we've invested in a number of managers who are specialists, and I think they they can drive outsized performance. Many fund of funds also agree with that too. Other corners of private markets may or may not be the case. But then you reflect that back on the other side of building an asset management business. And as these GPs get bigger, they may have to become multi-strategy. Or, certain size and scale to be able to attract capital, particularly from the high net worth channel, because certain people as allocators will gravitate towards brands. How do you reconcile those two competing challenges where specialized managers in certain areas of of private markets may outperform, but in order to attract more capital and build a business, and from the allocator perspective, it can be harder to? allocate to a specialized manager for the reasons that we just discussed? Uh,
1: It's all about discipline. So let's go back to public equity 15 years ago. If you were running a 25 to 30 stock fund, everybody pushed themselves out to 45 to 60 stocks because that felt more comfortable from a concentration perspective and they were able to raise more assets. It didn't necessarily generate higher returns, but it did raise more flows. I would say that's a cautionary tale for a lot of firms, maintaining your discipline because the assets will grow from the high net worth retail space, but not if you can't create a persistent level of performance that's consistent with what you've done previously. I think that's an important aspect that in evaluating managers that you're potentially looking to hire and include in your portfolio, that discipline, we've been asking for it on the public side for years. Like, What's your capacity? What will you do when you meet that? It's the same question to me. Look at some of the larger multi-strategy funds that institutional GPs have. They have exposures of less than half a percent on really high conviction ideas because they're so big. That's great that you had that idea. That's not really benefiting the performance. And I think that's where you as an allocator have to ask those tough questions.
0: So how can allocators square this circle? Because part of the challenge is one, many allocators are beginning to, particularly in the wealth channel, beginning to get up to speed in alts. They're just trying to understand the whole landscape. Some may not have the bandwidth. You're at Boston Private, so you understand this from sitting in the RIA allocator's perspective at SVB. Now at Newberger, you have all these different perspectives of thinking about this. How can the allocator really think about, okay, between... The types of things we want to do from an asset allocation perspective, the resources we have, the universe of private markets managers across all these different asset classes, certain asset classes make more sense to think about specialized managers versus brand names. How do they handle all of that? I
1: think it's the opposite of the way that you would think about it from an institutional allocator perspective. You start with your client and you start with what are you solving for your client? And the acknowledgement that Depending on the demographic of your client base, depending on the persona of the clients that you service and that you work with, there probably needs to be a particular area of focus. For instance, back when we were in the zero rate environment for a long time, we had a lot of clients who were near retirement or in retirement and had income needs. So the concept of alternative yields became a really important one where we're focusing on alternatives that generate yields that are outside of the public market and could provide obviously something that was better than zero. (laughs) So I think that that's from a high net worth allocator. You're always going to be capacity constrained, resource constrained in looking at this universe because it is immense. Really thinking about what am I trying to solve for, that will help you to narrow the asset classes or sub-asset classes where you can spend some time and then leverage what institutional GPs are doing. If you know that a certain firm is good, Newberger Berman, private equity, private credit, those are areas of expertise for us. Leverage that. Use those educational resources. Learn about those asset classes, not from a product perspective, but from an overall strategy perspective, and check your perception, if you will, that they will be additive to your client's portfolio based on that need, that outcome, desired outcome that I talked about earlier.
0: It's fascinating to think about the different ways in which these platforms can leverage Various pieces. You see the wealth channel as it's changing. You have roll up platforms, you have aggregators, even if they're wirehouse advisors. And I have plenty of subscribers across all of those cohorts. What would you say to them in terms of how they can best? Think about engaging with the various parts of their firm or the ecosystem in the way that, that you might from your perch at Newberger, given that you can talk to the private credit team or the private equity team.
1: I, I would say that whether you're in an RAA and you're a small advisor or whether you're in a wirehouse, the teams that work with the wirehouse platforms, intermediaries, they have the depth and breadth of access. I think it's more raising your hand and saying, hey, I don't really know everything that I want to know about this to whoever in your firm or whoever in your circle networks that we all have. There's so many opportunities, podcasts such as this, other events where you can go and you can learn a lot for a very small or or zero cost. I think it's just an acknowledgement that I don't know as much as I should probably know. I want to be able to create a more robust solution for my clients, help me learn things. And I can attest that. You raise your hand and you ask the questions. People are dying to talk about this stuff. People who have been investing in alternatives for a long time, we're incredibly passionate about this. And we think there's true value to be added in the retail channel with these products. And so that would be my advice.
0: On that point, what do you think is the biggest thing that allocators are not thinking about right now when it comes to alts? I,
1: I think what's the next phase and how do you continue the, the process, especially for allocators for whom you're working with a client when it's their first foray into alternatives. There's probably an immense amount of mental energy and social capital that you put into that conversation with your client to get them to make their first allocation into alternatives. You need to be thinking about what does that look like in five years or 10 years? How do trends change? You can't become anchored because this is such a quickly evolving space. And so how do I take the work that I've done in my firm, with my clients, in my team, and how do I say, okay, what are we building towards in the next five to 10 years? What types of strategies do we think we'll need because our client base is X, Y, Z? That's what we're not spending enough time on. I think we're still in that blocking and tackling of just getting people to invest in alternatives and yay, like, awesome, I just made my first allocation. In 10 years, you want that to just be something that's just another line item on the performance report. It's not something that you want to have to rehash and talk about every single time you talk to the client and ease their concerns about that. How do you create the same type of cadence that we do on equities and fixed income and What's your cash rate and what's your liquidity needs? We need to talk about private markets in the same way and with the same comfort that we do everything else in the portfolio.
0: That brings up an interesting point because the point of all to some extent is really thinking about things longer term and re- in some cases reducing volatility by having more patience being in private markets however it feels like in the current environment there's so much uncertainty whether it's interest rates whether it's geopolitics whether it's looming wars uh, a ton of things that would suggest that the current time is maybe a bit more complicated than than certain past times you've done this for a while so you can feel free to dispute that thought but if we go along that line of thinking that this is a more challenging time and more uncertain time to think about allocating. What should investors be doing?
1: I certainly would agree with you. I think where we've entered into, I call it the third phase of post-pandemic life. But really, it's much more than that. We're seeing some clear shifts in geopolitical uh leadership, if you will. Um, A lot has changed in terms of where the U.S. military was in 2000 versus where we are in 2023. We're seeing changes in terms of deglobalization. The saying, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. I would say one of the things that you can really look for, perhaps more so in the alternatives allocations that you have rather than even in the public markets, is asking a lot of questions about when things have changed, when there has been a potential dislocation or disruption, how have you handled that? Because there's an expectation that we're not coming in every day and that everything remains the same. The other thing I would say is that perhaps, and I'm sure people could argue with me on this, but perhaps this period of uncertainty and allowing there to be a combination of acknowledgement of risk, but identification of opportunity, that is longer duration, longer tenured, that might serve us well in this environment where it's really hard to predict the next six months, um, but it might actually be easier to look out five to 10 years and look at some of these more global trends and start to potentially extrapolate how those could be opportunities longer term.
0: How would one as either an individual or an asset allocator go about Figuring that out.
1: I think going back to all of us are going to sit in this seat as an allocator, and we have so many things that we have to worry about on a day to day basis. So, marrying what I think is the macro and some of the trends that we hear about from a macro perspective. There are firms out there who are talking about the challenging macro environment as setting the stage for the next phase of opportunity. Read those things. Listen to those things. You don't necessarily have to agree with it, but working with uh, institutional GPs that have a longer term time horizon that are thinking about this potential seed change or new regime I think that's the important piece here. The other thing is tying it back to your client. What's your client's time horizon? Because if their time horizon isn't 10 or 15 years, some of these opportunities, you might be better staying home, staying shorter duration, staying in strategies that have a more near-term catalyst than one of these longer-term thematic catalyst because of the time horizon that they have. And so I just think it's tying all those things together and not getting too caught up in the day-to-day understanding that we are going to continue to see some changes.
0: You bring up a really interesting point about the importance of thinking longer term and understanding how macro forces may change things. It's actually very timely because recently Goldman Sachs actually just set up a geopolitics institute. Others have done as well. McKinsey has their own institute of sorts. I think Lazard has been doing something similar. On that point, do you think managers, the GP side, has thought enough about macro when they think about investing? And if not, how do they go about upskilling that competency within their firms? I
1: think it's mixed. I think most firms are understanding that an acknowledgement of what's happening in the macro environment is important. However, I think that there's a difference between prognostication and looking at what's happening and looking at the potential consequences of some things that we're experiencing. If you talk with former military officials, for instance, they could have told you that this sort of shift in what's happening from a leadership standpoint and some of the geopolitical tensions that are arising was a coming force based on what we were doing from a military perspective. And so what I would say is that I would look at institutional GPs as having a lot of opportunity to leverage people outside of the investment world. A macro strategist is going to tell you one thing, somebody who's on the ground, building new facilities from a production standpoint outside of China in other Asia-adjacent areas, they're going to have a different perspective than a macro strategist sitting in New York City. So I think just expanding and widening the aperture is the most important thing for uh, firms to do. And many of them are global. Being able to tap different regions and take those different perspectives, like read a newspaper from outside of the United States, It's a completely different perspective.
0: brings up an interesting point, because if we focus on the equity side of private markets, in particular, private equity, growth equity, venture capital, it's really an exits business as much as anything else. And getting the exits right, both in terms of timing, the sector, the space, how much do you think more macro considerations plays into that versus a more bottoms-up analysis of, are you just investing in a great company? Because at the end of the day, it's all about exits.
1: Right. And so if you go back 20, 25 years, look at the number of small cap companies there were in the U.S. market and you see that huge decline. And that's because Um, people are exiting much later. (laughs) They're exiting when you can go right into large capitalization universes. I think that the challenge with private equity right now is that you're right, it's an exit business that has been turned into an improvement and maintenance business in this interim because we don't have the exit opportunity. And so I still think that there will be uh, a focus on exits. I think that Managers and allocators that can be strategic about finding other ways to exit businesses and being able to get creative about the exits on those businesses. That's where we're going to see, I think, more success over the next few years. And I also I think the death of, of IPOs is is overstated. The, the IPO window will open back up. You don't have to look at the last four that have come out over the last six weeks and say, oh my gosh, nobody's ever, ever successfully IPO again. I think that window opens up. I think that there's been enough time now over the course of the last couple of years we haven't seen those exits be available that I think a lot of managers are starting to look more strategically at other ways to exit companies. And I think that that's actually going to be a positive longer term because I think it's going to create a different set of opportunities in terms of Secondary investors and M and A picking back up again. That would be fantastic, actually, because rather than having all of these businesses incubated in these mega cap companies, somebody's already done it somewhere. Just go buy it.
0: (laughs) That actually brings up a really interesting conceptual framework for those entering alts right now. Does the prevalence of secondaries make this a great on ramp for many people who've never had exposure to alts? in a big way, now have an opportunity to kind of dip their toe in?
1: Absolutely. I would say from a high net worth perspective, secondaries were always interesting to us because it's such a shorter J-curve. I think when you're entering into a space when clients are accustomed to seeing consistent cash flows and monetization, dividends interest payments. There's a long time before you see anything back in the private equity space and certainly in the venture space. Obviously, that's a much longer time horizon. So I think secondaries offer a great opportunity. They also, I think from a GP perspective, an excellent opportunity right now to reconstitute portfolios, potentially add to performance, be able to invest in new opportunities. So I actually think it's good for both LPs in terms of shortening that J-curve and getting that monetization in a period where there is that uncertainty that we talked about. But also on the GP side, they want to take advantage of these opportunities. And so I think that secondaries is a, a really interesting option on both sides right now. And it's a place that Newberger Berman is certainly very interested in the space. We're doing a lot in the space. And I think that it does make sense as potentially an entree for high net worth clients who haven't been in the space previously.
0: That's a fantastic segue into... Areas that excite you most in private markets?
1: I would say secondary. You already discussed this. We're really excited about private credit. I think that a lot of people say that, but we have a significant amount of experience in private credit at Newberger Berman from my space as an allocator. It's a nice way to be able to complement what we're doing in the public fixed income space as well. We've obviously seen a lot of rate volatility. And as much as we want to be able to start pushing out from a duration perspective on the curve, that's tough given the shape of the yield curve right now. And so from a private credit perspective, that's a place we're very excited about. Then on the private equity side, as I mentioned, you're really setting the stage today for the next five to 10 years. So while there may be questions about the potential for exits, the portfolios you're building today are really setting the stage for that. And if we go back in time, for instance, to 2001, 2000, those were great vintage years, and they weren't a time when people really wanted to be investing in the private equity space at all. So when it feels like you're not super comfortable, might be the right time to be allocating.
0: Do you think people are more comfortable having seen past cycles where they may not have gotten into?
1: I'd like to say that they are. I don't know if clients are more comfortable, I, and I'm speaking for my space and in private wealth. I don't know if clients are more comfortable, but at least we've got some good data to be able to show them. And because the narrative has shifted around why the opportunities are good right now, I, I think we're just doing a better job of explaining the why around this period and why it makes sense to invest. I think we do have some historical precedent, but I also think that we're acknowledging 20 and 21 as a lot of money was raised. There were a lot of exits at very high valuations. We're resetting the expectations to be more realistic. And I think that deep down inside, clients appreciate that because we're talking about a couple of different periods and stating, and this is why today, is a great opportunity, even though you might not feel like it's as, as exciting as what we were experiencing in 2021.
0: What do you think are the biggest lessons that allocators today will look back 10 years from now, just like you mentioned? What do you think will be those things in 10 years or so?
1: I think there are two things. Number one, I, I think that this idea of investing in businesses that can be improved from an operating perspective, rather than just deriving return from a financial engineering perspective. I think that that's gonna be really important. That speaks to management experience, deal access, focusing on that in this environment and seeing the operational improvements that can be garnered that hopefully generate better returns. I think that's number one. And then number two, more broadly, we haven't talked about real estate, but I'll talk about it here. Real estate's going through a a transition period right now. We're seeing what's happening with interest rates, cost of capital on both the residential and commercial side. There's expectations of a pretty market increase in defaults. And I think what people are going to find out of this period is that there are going to start to be some opportunities in real estate over the next couple of years. There's a precedent for what happened in the financial crisis in terms of real estate. And hopefully people understand that the starting point for where we are today is different. And yes, there will be some demographic trends, but I do think that real estate will be something that I all all cares to look back and be like, wow, we really should have potentially seen some of this opportunity at the time. But right now, I still think there's a little bit of additional, to use your term, transparency that needs to come out and price discovery before people can really feel comfortable with that.
0: So if I sum up the last few minutes of how you think about the world, it's that in all, it's okay to be uncomfortable. So effectively get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that actually might be the best time to think about allocating to something. Where did you learn that Mindset and skill set.
1: I think that I'm generally a fairly cautious person. I, I want to have all of the facts and be making decisions based on that. And I found that in investing, once you have all the facts, you've you probably missed the opportunity. I think that it's important that it's not about taking risk. It's about acknowledging what risk you're taking and being comfortable with the potential range of outcomes around that risk. And so I'm never fully comfortable with any investment that I make, because I know I don't have all of the information. And I also know that there's all these exogenous forces that impact how that investment is going to perform that have nothing to do with my fundamental assessment or how will I know the manager, the opportunity in the asset class. So I think it's just from experience and watching people around me make those decisions and making some of those decisions myself and making those difficult decisions in times when it was important to make those difficult decisions, 2008, 2009. March and April of 2020, those were not easy times to make decisions. So I think you have to take the information that you know, but you have to always acknowledge that there's always a risk with that, regardless of how much work you've done. And it's just being comfortable with that risk and acknowledging that range of outcomes that could potentially emanate from it.
0: Yeah, where my mind goes with that is how do allocators balance the allocating to the easy, you never get fired for buying IBM type concept versus to your point, the returns are going to come most likely from elsewhere.
1: That's one of the questions that we talked about when we were in California together was how do CIOs get comfortable allocating to alternatives? And that's exactly the same thing. Now, if I go back, for instance, to 2006, 2007, you talk about something like a public market frontier market strategy. People were like, that is insane if you were allocating. Those people were taking on so much risk in a basically a subset of emerging markets equity. I think it changes over time in terms of what you're most comfortable with. And I think that getting comfortable with something from an allocation perspective, it, the same way that if you put something in a client portfolio they don't understand and they're not comfortable with, if you're allocating to something that you're really not comfortable with. I I wouldn't do that, right? Because then it's going to take up too much of my mental energy. I'm not going to feel comfortable. I'm constantly going to be second-guessing myself. And so if I do a lot of due diligence and deep research on something, and I still can't wake up, if I'm waking up every morning thinking about if I did that, this is how I would feel, it's probably better not to do that. Because you're not, from a behavioral perspective, going to be able to make the right decision when you need to either add to that or move out of it it's too complex for me if I'm not feeling that level
0: of conviction. So I think that's a great segue to thinking about what's been the learning or teaching that has been most, had the most indelible impact on your investing career when it comes to private markets.
1: I hate to say it, but the simplest thing is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. One of the things that I always take a step back is if this is a a new strategy, a new product, a new area, why do you have access to it? Why are you structuring it this way? Why are you doing this? It just allows me to feel like I've covered all of my bases in terms of alternatives. The other thing I would say, I know you asked me for one, but the other thing I would say is that going back to a comment I made earlier, not every exciting investment opportunity is investable from an institutional standpoint. There are areas of the market where I have looked. A great example is something like trade finance. It's an incredibly interesting part of the market. It seems like it would be just from a a yield and cash flow perspective, a really interesting area to invest in. It was almost impossible to find an institutional way to do that. So I had to move it aside. And I think that when you're in alternatives... If you're looking at something and it feels really like a true alternative, that like we talked about earlier, at some points in time, you might need to just table that and take a step back and say, you know what? If I was doing a very small kind of family office thing or something on my own, maybe this is investable. But I, as an allocator, I just can't get comfortable with this. I think that's the biggest thing is that not every investment idea always lends itself to a good allocation. So being realistic and introspective about that is really important.
0: How should investors think about that evolution. And maybe GPs as well, because there may be a way to innovate on that. And and I think we're seeing this in climate. I had Bill Oram from Capricorn Investment Group on the podcast, where he's creating an investment product to enable across the entire value chain invest into climate solutions. And that doesn't mean just investing in companies, but it means investing in project finance and all of that kind of stuff. And you kind of have to create a value chain for that to happen. Do you think that there's ways in which GPs can really think about that concept of what you just talked about? and say, okay, we don't have that ready from an institutional perspective yet, but let's figure out a product that works now for family offices or or quote unquote more risk capital, and then get to the point where we can build a business around this for institutions.
1: I think good GPs are doing that. I think they're looking at subsets of their universe and saying, listen, this is something that it could be maturation of the marketplace. It could be scale. It could be changes in the way that transactions are executed, for instance, that make it a more comfortable allocation. There could be more security or safety behind those cash flows and how they're paid. So I think that institutional GPs of quality are doing this. I think that also there there does need to be some acknowledgement that it's worth it for the risk to them. To be able to go into a place where um, there isn't potentially an institutional solution currently, but absolutely any good institutional GP is looking around the corner, not just the next corner, but three corners from now and saying, what could the opportunities that could be presented? Is there a way for us to access this market? If there's not, what are the challenges to it? How could we potentially get around that? I just think that's part of having an innovation mindset, having a focus on continuous improvement. You have to always be looking at that. And so I think they are doing that. But I would say it's a lot of what's available to larger institutional investors, more sophisticated investors, family offices, for instance, they're also able to take probably those binary outcomes in stride a little bit more than high net worth clients are. And so I'm comfortable with the fact that we don't have high net worth options for everything under the sun, because I do think there's going to be suitable things, appropriate things for high net worth investors that may not make sense for them outside of the institutional space.
0: I think that's a really important point when you think about this from the perspective of asset management as a business, there are different customers for different products in any business. And this is no different. You have to productize for the customer. Sales cycle will be different. Product will be different. But that's all part of how this works.
1: And the great part of being in uh, high net worth is that sometimes when you're looking at potential opportunities for your larger institutional clients or your family office clients, One or two of those actually might be actionable for your high net worth clients. And so rather than starting with, I'm only going to focus on alternative strategies that are right for my high net worth client, I like to have a combination of the two on both ends of the spectrum and a barbell, because sometimes the, uh, the ultra high net worth family office clients, the work you're doing for them can actually inform some other ways that you can add value for your high net worth client.
0: I think it's a fascinating concept. I've thought about this really in the concept of fintech, where I think there's obviously a lot that consumer fintech can learn about institutionalized fintech or how traditional banks have done things in that vein. I think it's the opposite is true, right? Like the, what innovation has happened in consumer fintech, I think actually more traditional banks can learn as well. So along that train of thought, What do you think the institutional investor community can learn from the high net worth channel in terms of thinking about investing?
1: Well, that's a good question. I wasn't anticipating that one. Okay, I think the institutional channel in looking at the structure of a high net worth relationship or a high net worth portfolio construction, having a very explicit reason to have things in the portfolio. When you have a conversation with a high net worth client, everything that's in that portfolio needs to have a rationale for why it's there. And so I think in building institutional portfolios, I've looked at particularly whether they're ultra high net worth or family office portfolios. There's a lot of things in there, and you start to try to create a rationale or a justification for every type of exposure that's in there. At some point, we talk about over-diversification. That can occur, too, from an institutional perspective. So really taking a step back and saying, am I over-diversifying my portfolio? Why is everything in there? For high net worth, that's what we do on a day-to-day, day-in, day-out basis— I think that institutional clients could benefit from that because I think I've seen that in real life where there are things that they're like, yeah, at this point, there's so much happening. We're not really sure that this portfolio is built to deliver the outcome that we're looking to.
0: That'll be fascinating to see that evolution as the high net worth channel plays a more prominent role in alts. So that'll be a really interesting concept to see. I always like to end this podcast by asking everyone same question, which is what is their favorite or most interesting alternative investment?
1: Um, This is really easy for me. It's litigation finance. I think it's one of the most interesting areas. If you think about the environment of the United States and that we have created this incredibly litigious society and the fact that there is an, an entire investment opportunity slash financing for lawyers to litigate cases. I think that's just an example of uh, the the structure of the economy, the structure of our society, creating an opportunity for private capital to um, generate a return. In other parts of the world, there's no way this exists in a lot of other places. But that's a great example of something that society created this. Our society, our capitalist society created this opportunity. So that for me is the most interesting.
0: It's a fascinating concept to think about what you just discussed and as well as what we've talked about the past few minutes. What do you think based on some of the characteristics that have made litigation finance possible and more institutionalized because there are funds and institutions will invest in litigation finance. If you think about going forward, because you've thought a lot about and and said some really interesting things about what the future could look like, what would you say is going to be your next favorite alternative investment that's going to become the next litigation finance?
1: Uh, I think the idea of an increase in public-private partnership for infrastructure builds and electrification and really thinking about all of the needs that we have both here as well as in Europe for the significant changes that we need to make to provide ourselves with energy security. I view that as a fantastic opportunity. I think right now it exists in certain places. It might be under an ESG mantle or commingled with a clean energy type opportunity. I think it's so much broader than that. The scale of infrastructure that we need to build to be able to maintain our security, to be able to deliver electricity, to be able to expand out from urban to rural areas, I don't think it can be done on the public side, and especially with the debt sustainability issues that we have and the fact that there is no coordinated fiscal policy in Europe. I think public-private partnership and the the ability to invest in infrastructure is going to be an excellent opportunity for the next decade. Uh,
0: It's a fantastic way to end this podcast because I think we've covered so much ground. But really, looking towards the future and sprinkling in some geopolitics and macro, which this answer does, this was a fascinating conversation. I'm so excited for people to be able to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much, Shannon, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so
1: much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I look forward to the next time we chat.
0: Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about Alts at my Substack, .substack altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at at Michael and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day.